When we were singing the national anthem, I've lived in Australia for 25 years now. I know I don't look old enough, and, uh, <laughs> but I have. And so it's actually been a very, very, very long time, possibly decades since I was here on a Waitangi day and singing my national anthem and um, I lost it. <laughs> so all my makeup's gone, it's all right. Um, I don't know if you understand how rare it is to have a national anthem like we have. That is a prayer, a Christian prayer to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That is a phenomenal thing. And I think, you know, as you sing that, sometimes you can look at maybe what's going on in the nation and go, well, what's happening, God? Where are we at? This doesn't look like what the prayer describes. And I just felt God wanted to encourage you today. You know, Abraham, when he was traveling in the, in the just coming into the promised land, and he, he dug wells, he dug wells. But over time, the Philistines came in and they filled up the wells. They stopped up the wells. And you look at what was birthed in our country, the wells that were dug in those early days, the well that was dug by whoever wrote our national anthem. I probably should know that, but too, too bad. You know, the well that was dug by our forefathers. And you look and you go, maybe the devil's come in and tried to stop up some of those wells. But something amazing happens. You know, the next generation comes in, a guy called Isaac, and he comes to the same place where his father had been and he discovers that Abraham's wells have been stopped up by the Philistines. And so he redigs the wells. He redigs what his father had dug. And I just want to encourage you. I believe God's saying it's time to redig the wells. And we're a new generation coming through. And so we're digging new wells. And that's also what Isaac did. He dug new wells, but he also redug the wells of his ancestor, of his father Abraham. And I just feel like that's a word for us today and for the church in New Zealand to redig those wells. It's not too late. The DNA that God placed in our nation is still there. The heart that he placed in our nation is still there. Those wells are still there. Just might be time to redig those wells in the spirit. So I want to encourage you. Let's pray for the churches in our in our nation to begin to redig those wells, to re-seek the Holy Spirit for what He wants to do in our nation. Lord Jesus, I just pray for every church in New Zealand right now. Lord God, I pray Your Spirit be poured out on everyone. God, Your anointing flood our nation. Lord God, the land of the long white cloud. God, I pray You would have Your way in this nation. Lord God. And as we sang our national anthem, Lord God, let it be so. Let it be so. Amen and amen. Awesome. Thank you. You can be seated. I will now not go off script again. <laughs> we shall see. We shall see. No, we won't see. I promise I'll stay on script now. <laughs> I do want to honour your pastors, Alan and Alan Hood. They are phenomenal people. You are so blessed with your pastors. They are a man and woman of integrity, character, faithfulness over the long haul. And it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to see because it was modeled to them by Pastor James and Mary. And, and so you have an incredible heritage and legacy in this place, don't you? So blessed. I also just want to personally thank you as a church, um, as a daughter of my parents, David and Fran. Um, you know, None of their children live in Tauranga anymore. And so I live in Australia and sometimes the distance, the physical distance can seem hard. And 
I have been so grateful and so blessed that they are in a church family like this, that you look after them, you care for them, you love them. And so to know that brings me great comfort when I can't be physically near. I know that you guys are here. And so I wanted to say thank you personally as a daughter for caring for my parents. So you guys are legends. All right. I'm speaking today on the path of surrender, the path of surrender. A few years ago, I was having lunch with an old friend, and we'd grown up together in church, we'd gone through youth ministry together, all the highs and lows of our teenage years together, and somehow we'd managed to stay in contact even after I moved to Australia. But I was back in Auckland, and so we caught up for lunch, and it was so good. You know, catching up on how she's going, how her family's going, how her kids were doing, but something was missing. You know, we'd grown up in youth ministry together. We'd been in those meetings where God's spirit was poured out. We'd wept on the altar in front of God. We'd cheered each other on in the call of God. We'd dreamed of how we'd serve God in the future. But now that was gone. And she was still a Christian, sure. But her faith was now a very small facet of her very full life. And the centrality of God had been moved to the outskirts of her life, to the periphery, making way for all the other more exciting things. And where once we talked about the things of God, now he never entered into the conversation. And it seemed to me that for my friend, God was now like the side salad that you order in the restaurant to keep your conscience clear while you tuck into a big bowl of carby pasta. Is that just me? <laughs> Instead of the main nourishment, instead of the, the, the focus of her heart, God was now on the side. Would you like a side salad? Would you like fries with that? Do I feel like God today? Take it or leave it, right? And I think sometimes if we're honest, we all fall into this trap. Instead of our daily nourishment that we cannot live without, God is relegated to the side of our lives, to a side dish that we can take or leave depending on our mood. And it's a sobering thought because I know how easily I fall into this trap. I, fall, I wander into this attitude without even realizing. And the Bible calls it being lukewarm. In Revelation 3 verse 15, Jesus actually speaks of this. He's talking to a church in Laodicea. And he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. We'll go down to verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So the city of Laodicea was very, very wealthy. In fact, in the year 60 AD, they had a really serious earthquake and the, the, the city managed to be completely rebuilt by the private wealth of its citizens. No government handouts here. The only lack the city had was in its water supply. And so what it did, these wealthy people, they built an extensive aqueduct system which brought water from a nearby city, a city called Hierapolis. Hierapolis had hot thermal springs. And so they would pipe this water from Hierapolis to Laodicea. But by the time the water got to the city of Laodicea, it wasn't hot anymore. And you guessed that it, it wasn't cold either. It was lukewarm. And so Jesus is actually alluding to characteristics of the city where they live so that people would easily understand the analogy he's making. 
He warns them that because of their lukewarmness, he will spit them out of his mouth in the same way that they would spit out the lukewarm water. In fact, the original Greek literally says he will vomit them out of his mouth. And then he says, I stand at the door and knock. And we often use that as an image for the unsaved. But he's talking to the church. Jesus is talking to Christians whose passion for him was once white hot, but they've become comfortable. They're still Christians. They're still doing all the things, but they're doing it out of habit instead of desire. They're doing it maybe for the approval of others instead of for the audience of one. If they were honest with themselves, they might even say they were going through the motions a little bit. They're lukewarm. They've settled. And I know for me, too many times I've been satisfied with the comforting glow of a scented candle when God wants to be my consuming fire. Hebrews 12.29 says our God is a consuming fire. The symbol used more than any other symbol for God in the Bible is fire. Fire represents God's holiness, his absolute righteousness. And so we see God in the burning bush of Exodus 3, when God tells Moses he's standing on holy ground. In the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, God proves himself Lord of all by sending fire from heaven to consume the the offering. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was sealed with tongues of fire. Our God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? Our God is holy. Our God is holy. What does it mean when I say that? Our God is holy. Because we hear that with our we hear that phrase with our modern ears and we think, oh, well, it just means God doesn't sin and he doesn't like it when we sin, when we do the wrong thing. Can I tell you, church, that does not even scratch the surface of understanding the holiness of God. John Piper puts it this way. He said, the holiness of God is the most fundamental reality of all. It refers to the reality that God is utterly unique and in a class by himself. None compares with him. There is no other creator, no other sustainer, no other final measure of good and evil. He is utterly set apart in a class by himself, unequaled, unrivaled, totally underived, absolute in his being and perfection, without beginning or ending or improvement. In a word, his holiness is the supremacy of his infinite worth among all that is. We hear all the time that God is love, and he is. But in the Bible, God is called holy more than he is called anything else. In fact, the Bible says God is love a grand total of two times in the same chapter. It says God is holy literally hundreds of of times. And in Isaiah chapter 6, we get a glimpse of that holiness. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered with their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. See, we think that God's holiness just means he doesn't sin. But I want you to see this. The seraphim that flew around the throne of God are angelic beings. They are sinless. 
And yet in the presence of the holiness of God, they cover their faces in reverence because they may be sinless, but only he is holy. He is in another realm. And they cry out over and over, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. We get another glimpse of this in Revelation chapter 4. And this time it's a vision given to the Apostle John. And just like Isaiah, John sees a vision of the throne room of heaven. And angelic beings are circling the throne crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. There are only two times in the entire Bible where an attribute of God is repeated three times. These two times. It's Isaiah's vision and John's vision. In Hebrew literature, repetition was used to emphasize an important point. And Jesus would often make use of this. He'd say, truly, truly, I say to you. He's saying, listen up. What I'm about to say is really, really important. And so to mention something three times elevates it to supreme importance. And I want you to see it doesn't say love, love, love. And please hear me. I'm not disregarding the love of God right now. But it's not his love that is repeated three times. It is not his mercy or his kindness or his power or his justice or his grace. The characteristic that is twice repeated three times, elevating it to supreme importance. Holy, holy, holy. It's God's holiness that sent Jesus to the cross. Think about it for a second. If God was a God of love only and not holiness, he could just allow anyone into heaven right? There'd be no judgment for sin. Sin would be fine in the presence of God if God was not holy. But because he is holy, sin had to be dealt with. A sinful being in the presence of God cannot survive. His holiness destroys anything that is sinful. And so it was not God's love alone that sent Jesus to the cross. It was his holiness. Someone had to pay the penalty for our sin. Someone had to be victorious over sin and death. And only our holy God, come to earth as the Son of Man, could fulfill the holy requirement. And so the blood of Jesus that was shed for our sin covers us and atones for our sin. And so when God looks at you, when God looks at me, he sees us through the blood of Christ. We have been made righteous before him. Jesus willingly gave his life on a cross because he is a holy God who loves us. It was his holiness and his love that sent him to the cross. God's holiness is supreme. It infuses every part of him. His love is holy. His power is holy. His justice is holy. And so when Isaiah had a glimpse of the Lord seated on the throne and the seraphim are crying, holy, 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 Isaiah was undone. He cries out in verse 5, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He thought he was about to die because in his sinfulness he had seen the Lord. When Peter had a glimpse of the holy power of God in Luke 5, he fell at Jesus' feet and he cried out, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. When Solomon finished building the temple of God, a holy place, 2 Chronicles 7 tells us that fire came down from heaven. Remember, fire represents the holiness of God. It says, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. 
And when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord. The priests could not enter the temple because of the glory of God. The people could not stand in the holy presence of God. God's first revelation to Moses before calling him to deliver Israel was his holiness. God's first revelation to Joshua before the battle of Jericho was his holiness. God's first revelation to Isaiah before calling him as a prophet was his holiness. God's revelation to Israel before giving them the law was his holiness. Our God is holy. We need a revelation of the holiness of God. And out of that revelation of God's holiness will come three things. Number one, the fear of the Lord. Do I have any Narnia fans here? Anyone love the Chronicles of Narnia? Yeah, good. Among friends. In the Chronicles of Narnia, if you haven't read it, you should. Don't believe the lies that it's a kid's book. It's a brilliant book. Well, series. C.S. Lewis paints the most glorious picture in the Chronicles of Narnia of Aslan. It's a picture of Jesus. Aslan is the Lion King of Narnia. And in the book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the children are nervous about meeting this mysterious Aslan that everyone keeps speaking about with this reverence and adoration. And so Mr. Beaver explains to the children, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I, feel she'll, I, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Later on in the book, Mr. Tumnus explains that Aslan is not a tame lion. City Church, can I tell you today, our God is not tame. Our God doesn't fit into our nice little boxes. Our God is not safe. He is the Lord Almighty, the judge, ruler of heaven and earth, but he is good. He is holy. He is the king. When we receive a revelation of the holiness of God, we're filled with the fear of the Lord. And for Christians, it's not a panic-stricken terror as it would be if we were confronted by evil. The fear of the Lord is a deep reverence that bubbles up from the core of our being. It's an awe of him. It's fear and hope and love all wrapped up in reverence and spilling over into worship. It's a profound awareness of his magnificence and his majesty and his holiness. An awareness that there is none like our God. Revelation 19 verse 11 says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That's a line you don't often hear preached in church, is it? On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our Lord is not a tame lion. 
He isn't safe. He isn't to be ignored. The seraphim cover their faces. Isaiah cried, woe is me. Peter fell on his face before him. John fell on his face before him. The priest could not stand in his presence. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is not tame. He is not safe, but he is good. And so the fear of the Lord is not to be avoided. The fear of the Lord is the proper response to his holiness. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. See, the fear of the Lord brings you wisdom, and awareness of His holiness brings understanding. But I want you to see it says the beginning of wisdom. In other words, this is the starting point. The fear of the Lord is the starting point for understanding God, for understanding the world, for understanding ourselves. If we don't start with awe and fear and reverence for the infinite holiness of our God, everything else we've misunderstood. The fear of the Lord. The second thing that's birthed within us as we encounter the holiness of God is love for the Lord. A revelation of the holiness of God will lead to the fear of the Lord. And out of our reverence and awe at our holy God will come a deep love for God, a love that we cannot contain. And this is a beautiful paradox of Christianity because we don't normally associate fear with love. But because of his holiness, because of his goodness, because of his majesty, because of his power, because of his infinite love, the fear of God that is birthed within us is inextricably entwined with a love for God. Love for who he is, love for what he's done, love because he first loved us. Fear of God and love for God go hand in hand, and it's beautiful. And yet it seems to be one that we often struggle with. We've got no problem saying the words, I love you, Lord, but living it can be a different story, right? And I think our problem is that too often we prefer to love ourselves, Love for ourselves creeps in when we're not looking, when we're not paying attention. It takes up residence in our hearts, in our priorities, in our finances, in our time. And of course, this is nothing new because we're no different from everyone who's gone before. In the Old Testament, the Israelites are commanded to love God literally dozens of times. I'm going to give you three super quick examples. I'm going to run through super quick, so run with me. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Joshua 23.11. Be very careful to love the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 11.1. Love the Lord your God. See, over and over and over, God says, I want you to love me. Love me. This is for your good. Love me. He commands his people to love them. But did you know there was only one time in the entire Old Testament do we see someone tell God that they love him? Once. Psalm 18 verse 1, David says, I love you, Lord, my strength. In the entire Old Testament, despite God repeatedly telling his people to love him, this is the only time it is recorded that someone actually said the words. No wonder, despite all of David's mistakes and all of David's sins, God called him a man after God's own heart. Because David was far from perfect, but he understood what it was to love God. 
Jesus said it this way in Mark 12, verse 29. He was asked, what is the most important commandment? He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Paul then takes it next level because that's what Paul does. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. That is such a Paul thing to say. Here's our problem today. Sometimes we are so preoccupied with the fact that God loves us that we neglect our love for him. We're told over and over and over that God is love, despite the Bible only saying it twice. And it's not that it's not true. He is love. But we've become so preoccupied with God's love for us that we've neglected our love for him. God's love is relentless. It's the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, right? But in my focus on how much God loves me, I've placed myself at the center of this relationship where God should be. We've created God in our own image as the desperate boyfriend who's obsessed with us and is just hoping we'll notice him. Or we create him in the image of the cosmic Santa, big and jolly, who looks on at us from a smiling distance, doesn't look too closely at our sins or our faults, and is ready to give us whatever we want. When this happens, our whole concept of God is wrapped up in what he does for me. I am at the center, not Christ. This is not our God. This is a lopsided view. But this is the view we get when we neglect the holiness of our God, and when we neglect the fear of our God, our love becomes distorted. People's view of God becomes warped. He's reduced to the genie that will grant our wishes. And when he doesn't, our faith is so rocked that we fall away because we can't rationalize why we didn't get our miracle. We walk out away from the only one able to bring the miracle. Believe there's a sifting taking place in the body of Christ right now. There's Christians falling away from the faith. And on the surface, it can appear to be between people who love God and people who don't. But I think it's deeper than that. The sifting that is taking place in the body of Christ is between those who fear God and those who don't. Between those who have a revelation of the holiness of God and those who don't. Because they've got God at the center. But when we have the revelation of the holiness of God, his majesty, the centrality of him, everything else falls away. And it's at that point that we step into the fear of God and we discover in that place of awe, in that place of reverence, that we love him like never before. And I believe that God is awakening a fresh love for God in our hearts. City Church, let us be known for our love for God. The third thing that happens when we encounter the holiness of God is we get a hatred for sin. Now, we need to realize that things, these things happen in order. On our own, we have no hatred of sin. Our flesh nature wants to sin. Our fallen self desires sin. But when we have a revelation of the holiness of God and a fear of God is birthed within us and that fear of God opens up a deep and abiding love for God. That love permeates every part of our being, spirit, soul, and body. And when we're filled with that awe and reverence and love for God, with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, something miraculous takes place. We begin to hate sin. And it's so important to get the order right, though. 
First comes the revelation of his holiness. Then comes fear of the Lord. Then comes love for the Lord. It's out of that that the hatred for sin comes. Out of that comes the desire to do what is right. You can't just manufacture it. You see, we're predictable and we do what our ancestors did. And if you go all the way back to the beginning days of the early church, people were predictable then too. Gnostic Christianity was rife in the early church just as it is today. And it would always go one of two ways. The pendulum would swing one way or the other depending on the person. The Gnostic Christian would either become very legalistic, living a very stifled, rigid, restrictive life, trying in their own strengths to crucify the sin nature and be spiritual, or they would swing towards permissiveness, where it didn't matter what you did because God loves you just the way you are. Immorality and greed and self-centeredness were all couched in terms like grace and love. And it's no different today. We either become legalistic, imposing the law on others, or we become permissive where everything and anything is right simply because it feels good. Can I tell you, both are sin. And when sin becomes prevalent in the church, if I can paraphrase 2 Timothy 3, it's because we've become lovers of ourselves and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. But when we have that revelation of His holiness... When we walk in the fear of the Lord, when we're filled with love for our God, we are transformed from the inside out. Hatred of sin and a godly life doesn't come because we're guilted into it. It's not because we should. It's because we cannot help the desire within us to become more like Jesus, to be transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Holiness brings health and growth and wholeness. In fact, the root word for holy in the English actually comes from an Anglo-Saxon word that means well or whole. Whatever is holy is healthy. Whatever is evil has a moral sickness to it that leads to death. So a revelation of the holiness of God as we're transformed into the image of Christ will lead to a hatred of sin. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, to preserve his creation, God must destroy whatever would destroy it. When he arises to put down iniquity and save the world from irreparable moral collapse, he's said to be angry. Every wrathful judgment in the history of the world has been a holy act of preservation. The holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of the creation are inseparably united. God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. He hates iniquity as a mother hates the polio that takes the life of her child. See, God's hatred of sin is not because he's a killjoy. It's because he sees what it does to his creation. He hates it like we hate cancer. Because sin is a cancer. It destroys everything in its path. But something shifts when we understand the holiness of God. We begin to see with his eyes. We begin to grasp the destruction of sin. We begin to hate it because our God hates it. Spurgeon talks about sin in the life of the Christian like this. He said, sin is not a reigning king, but a lurking outlaw. What does sin do if it cannot reign over the believer? It lurks inside the soul like an outlaw whose banishment has not yet taken place. As a reigning king, sin is dead to you and you to it. But as a sneaking outlaw, sin is still lurking in your soul. It is plotting and planning to get back its former dominion over you. And not merely plotting and planning, but it is also warring and fighting to that end. 
When we have a revelation of God's holiness, we begin to see sin for what it is, an outlaw seeking to destroy us. And suddenly, instead of seeing how much we can get away with, our heart's posture changes. Now we live 1 Timothy 4.12, setting an example for the believers in love, in speech, in conduct, in faith, and in purity. Now we live Philippians 4 verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I'm going to ask the worship team to join me. So where does all of this take us? A revelation of God's holiness, fear of the Lord, a passionate love for God, hatred of sin, all of this takes us to a place of total surrender. We behold him and we are changed. Now we live for him. He is now our chief focus. Our one purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Because surrender looks a lot like obedience. Jesus said in John 14, 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. This is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? I can say I love him, but this is where the evidence is. Because if I say I love him, I will obey his commands. It's as simple as that. God says in 1 Peter 1 verse 16, Be holy because I am holy. See, your holy God is calling you to a life of holiness. He's calling you to be transformed into the image of his son, to be more like Jesus. We're not talking about legalism. We're talking about when our awe and our wonder and adoration and love for God leads to obedience and transformation. Surrender. We want to be like him, and so we surrender all to him. And you know what? We may need to give up some stuff. Maybe there's sin that you just haven't been willing to give up yet. It's time. Job 31 talks about making a covenant with your eyes. What are you allowing into your soul and into your spirit through your eyes? What is bringing separation between you and God through what you watch? Maybe it's conversations you shouldn't be having. Maybe it's habits or behaviours that are just not pleasing to God. Maybe it's stuff that isn't even sin exactly, but it's keeping you stagnant. It's distracting you. It may not be evil or wrong, but it's just kind of destroying your first love and you're finding yourself lukewarm. And when you're lukewarm, the Holy Spirit can't move in your heart like He wants to because your attention is on something else. Your focus is on something else. He wants to speak to you, but you can't hear his whisper. His voice is drowned out by all the white noise. Social media, TV shows, friends, a loose life, sin, habits. Maybe it's the talking, the stress, the worry, everything that's filling your mind and filling filling your ears and filling your heart. He wants to speak truth and life and hope, but we'll miss it if we're distracted. He wants to bring revival, but it starts in our hearts. It starts with total surrender. Sometimes we cry out for revival. We cry out for a move of the Spirit, but we haven't yet surrendered our hearts to Him. We've not yet surrendered our habits to Him. We haven't yet been obedient to Him. There was a revivalist called Charles Finney, 
And he said, a revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. So I'm going to ask you this morning just to stand. Just close your eyes. Holy Spirit is here. Just focus your attention on him. Lean into his presence right now. Be consciously aware of the presence of God in this place and in your heart. Every revival has started with hearts that are desperate for God. Every revival has started from a place of surrender. Every revival has begun with repentance. Repentance is a beautiful thing. Repentance is not something to shy away from. Repentance brings freedom. Repentance brings life. It is His kindness that leads us to repentance. Repentance opens the door of our heart for the Holy Spirit to move. And there's an old song that we're going to sing in just a minute. It's called, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And it was written by a woman who was blind. But this blind woman saw with incredible clarity. She understood that when we seek Him and Him alone, we see like we've never seen before. So right now, this morning, as we go into worship, it's not about seeking the gifts of God or the miracles of God or the manifestation of God. It's not about seeking an experience or a fuzzy feeling or a particular emotion. Right now, it's about seeking His face. Seeking Him and Him alone just for the joy of being in His presence. It's when we're not satisfied with a visitation that comes and goes. It's when we want to be His place of habitation. That our heart would be the holy of holies, the place where His presence dwells. So can I ask you this morning, where is your heart? What does your heart love? What is the cry of your heart? What do you maybe need to repent of this morning? Just do it right now. What area of your life is the Holy Spirit shining His light on? What area of your life is He asking you to surrender this morning? Your holy God is awakening in you a fear of the Lord. He's awakening a love for the Lord. He's awakening a hatred of sin. Total surrender. Let me pray for you right now. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence. God, we do not take it lightly. Your holy presence. And God, we repent for putting ourselves at the centre. We repent for being more focused on your love for us and our love for you. God, bring us back to our first love. Bring within us an awareness of your holiness. God, give us a revelation of your holiness, of who you are. Not what you've done for us, who you are. And Jesus, right now, we turn our eyes upon Jesus. We look full in your wonderful, glorious, holy face. And the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace.